Are listening to booze, bullshit, and, and true crime. Okay, I'm Bree. I'm Wade. I'm gonna talk about some gnarly shit. Some rich gnarly shit. I think the gnarliest shit we're probably gonna talk about is all the shit that's happened in the past week, though. But yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> sure. But what is the theme? Explain the theme to us, sir. Rich people killing not rich people. Yeah. And rich people getting away with those killings. Precisely. Or not getting away. Or not getting away. Almost getting away. Yeah, and then incriminating yourself. It's amazing what really fancy, really expensive lawyers can do. That's what researching my case... or not Actually, not my case. Your case has taught me. Mine's older. But fancy, rich lawyers can't fix stupid. So... That is very true, especially... Like, I know what Wade's doing, which will be a surprise when he gets to his case, because I recommend that he did it, because it's such a crazy, good, crazy, crazy case. Also, it's been a long time, no talk, listen, whatever the fuck. We didn't record last week. Yeah, and I didn't even know that we didn't. I am going to be honest. (sighs) Everything with this coronavirus, having to quarantine for so long on top of, like, all the present issues already existing in my life kind of came to a head last week, and I was very overwhelmed, and I might have had a panic attack, so I'm sorry, guys. I hope you understand, but it was a hard week, so we, uh, we sidestepped. And we're recording a day late, but I think we're going to actually start recording on Tuesdays now because it's... I think it's our year anniversary. It's coming up on it, at least. I'm pretty sure it's at least it's this week. I know that much. We will verify and post on our page. Yay. And if, if you want to see our page on Facebook, look up Booze, Bullshit, and True Crime. It's the same on Instagram. Bullshit has an asterisk in it for the kids, you know. Censored. Yeah. We also have a Gmail. We got our first hometown write-in that we did our last episode on. Thank you, Michaela. Thanks, Michaela. So if you want to be a badass like Michaela, then email write us. Write a shit. What? Said be badass and write a shit. Write a shit, yes. Booze, BS, and true crime at gmail.com is the email. Um, I quit my job. I quit my job and got a new job. The same time that I quit my job. I didn't get a new job, but what are you going to... Are you excited about your new job? I don't know what my new job is yet. True. Everybody wants him. No. Wait, it's so hot right now. No. Yeah. No. You're getting calls back, man. At least you're getting calls back. I got a call back and then an email two hours later saying, sorry, the position's been filled. I'm like, oh, thank you. Oh, okay. <laughs> that was quick. Yeah. We are, we've been essential employees. We took a leave of absence because my dad's autoimmune compromised. Um, so, like, our companies are working. It's just about them hiring and finding a position now. But I turned my truck in yesterday. It's Tuesday right now, the 19th. So yesterday I turned my work truck in. I am unemployed again. Um, but that would have happened in a few weeks to a month anyways because of the contracts happening in our area. So, just a scary time. 
Yes. Uncertain times. But British, all around. British Columbia is open, so that means more than likely I'll be able to go to my yoga and meditation teacher training certification course in July. Got a month to go. So I'm going to be super, super safe while I'm traveling. That's the only part that makes me a little nervous. Once I get there, it's so isolated, it's not a big deal. But wearing a mask for an entire flight is probably not going to be super comfortable, but I'll get it done. And usually I have you to depend on to like get to the terminals and know where I'm going because I get super overwhelmed and I'm all on my own. So I'm going to fucking do it, yo. You know what to do. Yeah. They got big-ass screens everywhere that tells you what the fucking flight is, where the fuck to go. I only have one transfer, and it's in Vancouver, so... And, and then I'm going to your layovers part. are long enough to where you don't have to stress about it. I can't remember how long my layover is. Six. Six hours? Mm-hmm. And then my other flight is, what, like half an hour or something? Because it's from Vancouver to yeah. Nass Valley? Oh, man. Okay. Yeah. I feel like that's what I need right now, though. But Vancouver Airport is pretty big. You, you'll have a lot of shit to do. You can probably even go see a movie. I don't know if I want to see a movie. I want to explore, but I'm excited. Either way, it's good. Is there anything else that happened? New jobs, mental breakdown. We got mm. a lot of uh, cucumber plants and squash plants growing in our greenhouse right now. Cucumbers. Yeah, I mean, we got like uh, four, five cucumber plants, four uh, long neck yellow squash plants, and four regular. Uh, and two different kinds of sage and rosemary and two different kinds of parsley and chamomile and lemongrass and all kinds of shit. Lemon balm. And I have to point out how my day is going today. It is 11.42 a.m. I have not had breakfast. I am halfway through my cup of coffee and I have another coffee cup right next to it in front of me while we're recording filled with wine. So happy Tuesday. And I'm just stunned. I'm that too. Mm Mm-hmm. Yay. So, on to our cases, because Brie has one that is quite interesting. You know what it is. You looked. Oh, I saw it the other night. I already know this case. Everybody knows this case. Do you want to go first for once, though? No. You go first. Okay. Well. Well, our computer is deciding that it is going to uh, not respond to us right now, so... Looks like we might have to edit pause this? and edit this. <laughs> okay. Oh, it's back. We're good. Oh, okay. my goodness. So, we bought this computer, what, two months ago? Mm-hmm. All right, sorry for the bump. I'm ready. So, my case that I did is H.H. Holmes, a.k.a. the Murder Castle. And there is so much that goes into this case, I'm doing, like, I'm going to give you guys details and definitely go into it and you'll have an understanding, but if you want to know everything about this case, there is so much information online. Some of it conflicting, but it is a really good story. Um, This one's dark as fuck, as always, and this guy's an absolute monster, but I must say he had the most magnificent mustache I have ever seen in my entire life. The Holmes mustache, yes. You've seen a picture of yes. him? Well, H.H. H. Holmes. I know. I just want to bring it up and observe. He was such a dickhead, but, like, look how fucking cool he looks. <laughs> I know that's bad to say, but look at him. It's a bushy mustache. It's a good one. Uh, Handlebars. He has good comes. style, too. Look at that hat. I still hate him. All right. To start it off, let's go ahead and hear a quote straight from the man himself, shall we? I was born with the devil in me. 
I could not help the fact that I was a murderer. No more than a poet can help the inspiration to sing. I was born with the evil one standing as my sponsor, beside the bed where I was ushered into the world, and he has been with me ever since. Whoa. Right? I read that, and I was like, all right, Edgar Allan Poe, like, damn. Damn. He was born May 16th, 1861, and Holmes went by a few different monikers during his lifetime. Herman Webster Mudgett was what he was born as. He also went as Dr. Henry Howard Holmes, or most commonly, H.H. Holmes. So that's not even his real name. Nope. Uh, Holmes confessed to 27 murders himself, but only nine of those claims were substantiated. And there's some back and forth with if he lied about some murders or if he didn't, if he wanted himself to have like a grandiose appearance of being a serial killer where it was really less victims. But either way, dude was nuts. Many of these victims were thought to have been killed in Holmes' building he owned. That was three miles west of the 1893 World Fair Columbian Exposition in Chicago, which it's some big traveling thing that goes to different areas. It's the World Fair. Yeah, it's the World Fair. Um, I think it's in, it's in Europe or France or somewhere. The World Fair actually did it on like a boat, and the boat is still out in the water. Were there hose on the boat? And I think that they sold crabs <laughs> off the boat, too. <laughs> Boats and hoes. And crabs. <laughs> it's um, like deadliest catch without the crabs. But this, like, this caused an influx of people into the area when it came, basically. Okay. <clears throat> the residence that he owned is affectionately referred to as the Murder Castle, like I stated earlier. Holmes wasn't a one-trick pony. He wasn't just a serial killer. He was a bigamist and a con, which we will dive into a little deeper during this story. So he was like a super villain criminal guy. Holmes grew up in a super conservative Methodist home. As a young adult, he enrolled and graduated from the University of Michigan's Department of Medicine and Surgery. So he went to medical school. Years later, Holmes did confess to using cadavers to fraud insurance companies while enrolled in the university. Um, so he would literally, like, steal cadavers from the medical school, and what's the word when you, uh, like, destroy something? He would desecrate, or he would fuck up the body, basically, and then have an insurance policy and take out a claim on that and basically say there was a horrible accident, so that's why the body's so fucked up, so they couldn't positively identify it. DNA wasn't a thing back then, so he was just, I thought that was weird and creepy, but very smart, and how do bodies just go missing and nobody notices? Because I was out of school. I don't know. Yeah, he was a hell of a, hell of a, hell of a dude. During university, Holmes' first wife, Clara Lovering, was her name, left him and took their son Robert with her back to New Hampshire, and she really never saw him again or had anything to do with him. There are many claims of abuse concerning Clara and Holmes. Those weren't substantiated, but a lot of Holmes's friends said that he was abusive to Clara. And they had met, like, I think it was right before he went into college or as he went into college, so they were super young and didn't work out. Holmes moved to New York after this happened, where he was spotted with a little boy who ended up disappearing, and then he hightailed it out of that town, and no investigation was conducted. Okay. Holmes then popped up in Philly, working at a state hospital there. He then switched jobs and ended up working at a drugstore. 
which was also in Philadelphia, where a boy died after ingesting medication purchased at the store. <laughs> so bad things are just popping up wherever this guy goes. He then dipped the fuck out of there from Philly, changing his name to Henry Howard Holmes to help give him uh, anonymity and you know, help him not be connected to his previous murders and scams that he had been doing everywhere he fucking went. Even though at this point he had not faced any prosecution, um, I guess he just changed his name to kind of be ahead of the game, which is kind of smart. Coffee sip break. Sorry. Holmes then started a life in Chicago. And this is where, like, the story gets so convoluted and crazy. Like I said, I don't have enough time to go into everything, but I feel like I pulled out the darkest, twisted, most twisted, juiciest bits. Um, God damn it. I keep losing my place. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. I'm struggling. I'm here. I'm here. Okay. As I was trying to say. Super convoluted, crazy story, not enough time in this podcast to talk about everything, but there is a lot more to his early life. There was a lot of information, um, like when he was separated but still legally married to Clara, his first wife that left him after he graduated. He married another lady named Myrta the Theodate, I believe is how you pronounce her last name, and they had a daughter together too, so that's his second kid. Then they broke up. They never divorced either, and he moved on to a woman named Georgia while still married to both Myrta and Clara. Nice. So he just kept, like, racking up them marriages and not getting a divorce. And back then, how record-keeping was, I believe, if it wasn't in, like, the same county or the same state or whatever, there was no way that that would... They, wouldn't, they had no way of communicating with each county and state and shit, so they right. didn't know. Right, so he was legally married to all three of these people. Yeah. Even though he wasn't living with all of them. But he also got married under different names. He did, true. He had aliases as well. Yeah. Yeah. During his university days, uh, Holmes eventually confessed to murdering one of his classmates, Robert Leacock, for insurance money. So he confessed later, but it happened while he was in medical school. Mm -hmm. But that dude actually died later than... Holmes stated he died in 1886, and that was on record. So, I mean, Holmes kind of confessed to a lot of shit that maybe he didn't do, and it's kind of hard to know what's real. But what the emerging theory is with, like, that specific thing with his friend from medical school is that was all for insurance money. So Leacock was in on the deal as well. He faked his own death, mm. and then they split the insurance money. Gotcha. Yeah, so people were thinking like, oh, he murdered her. So it's like, no, they were in on the shit together and they just cashed out on the insurance money, which kind of badass. Uh, so back to Chicago after, you know, Holmes is an adult and he's living in Chicago. It's August 1886 and Holmes began working at a drugstore that he eventually bought. So he worked his way up, bought the whole store. There are myths out there that exist about Holmes murdering the owners of this drugstore that he worked at, but that has proven to be false. They lived long lives, retired in Chicago, and died naturally. So he just bought the place from them. Holmes then decided to buy a vacant lot across from the drugstore and started construction uh, on a multi-use building. So the plan was to have a drugstore on the bottom level, apartments on the second floor, retail spaces too. 
Holmes wouldn't fork up money he owed to the architects and steel company working on the project in the beginning. So the company sued Holmes in 1888. I think Holmes said, like, they didn't do it to his liking or something and just refused to pay them. And they were like, um, no. Don't you have to pay for construction up front? Typically. Yeah, that's weird. Okay. It was the 1800s. Then, in 1892, he added a third floor, which was supposed to be a hotel, but was never actually completed. And Holmes did this thing where he would use a contractor for a period of time. Sorry, sit break. Hold on. Ah, okay. He would use a contractor for a period of time. And when he felt like they were, like, learning too much, because the construction of this reminded me of the Winchester Mystery House. And if you don't know what that is, fucking wiki that, because it's super interesting. But it was a maze, basically, and a confusing layout, which we'll get into. But when he felt like the contractors were kind of, like, figuring out that layout and building too much and having too much of the blueprints, he would just fire them, hire a whole new contractor. So he did this over and over and over again. So nobody really knew what the layout was and i'm assuming in the 1800s oh my alarm's going off i'm sorry guys pause and we're back sorry for the interruption so would fire contractors all the time um and he just didn't want anybody to to really know like how to get out of the building how to get in and i mean I don't know anything about construction, but nowadays, don't you have to, like, submit a blueprint to the county so it shows, like, how it's constructed, or is that not a thing? So back then, that probably wasn't a thing. So just the contractors would have the blueprints. They'd get fired, start over. That's how it it worked, I'm assuming, right? Yeah, but, uh, yeah. (laughs) Okay. But the whole thing is, is somebody's going to know, like, if you're going to put a hidden room in, somebody's building that door to put that room in there you get what i'm saying well, so, and we'll, we'll get to that yeah, yeah. If, if they build it they know it's there but they don't know about the 17 other hidden rooms in there that's what, like exactly. nobody knows the full layout um so some of those details about this murder castle there were rooms within the castle quote castle that were soundproof like intentionally soundproofed when they were built by the contractor there were maze-like hallways that seemed to lead to nowhere And a ton of the rooms were outfitted with, like, a metal chute going straight from the room down into the basement. Now, the basement is where Holmes disposed of his victims' bodies. He used... Oh, God! Fly just attacked me! He used vats of acid, he used quicklime, and he even had two personal cremation... What is that? A crematorium? Is that what it's called? Furnace? I think it's called a crematorium, when it's four burning bodies, yeah, furnace, mm. whatever. So he had two of those, so he could just incinerate them, and they would turn well, to dust. an incinerator, that's what it is. I think an incinerator is not the word used for ones for bodies, though. Like, that's what it is. I'm but pretty there's... sure it is. I think the building itself is a crematorium. Ah, all right. But, yeah, I think the burner is still an incinerator. Anyways. So- something that sets bodies on fire. At a really, really fast pace. Yeah. Uh, do, 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 do. He also had this scheme he did for years where he would like essentially employ people and generally speaking they'd be people who were, you know, single people or travelers or people that didn't have like a whole lot of connection in the area passing through. He would give them jobs, which 
I'm reading this and like the building never really functioned as a whole business like he wanted it to, but I'm sure there were parts of it that did function. So he used these people to work in the building, paid them. Then he would get insurance policies signed up under their name. Then he would kill them in the house and collect that insurance money. But he did it over and over and over and over again. So he'd be like, come into my murder castle. And then he'd kill them and then cash out a bunch of money. And the insurance company didn't say anything about these 27 deaths that happened in his murder castle and the thousands of dollars that they gave him? Well, that's what that's what I'm saying. Like, back then, this is late 1800s. So back then, there were not digital files. It's not like when they pulled up his name, they could see any other claim that happened. Eventually, I'm sure that's part of the reason that got him caught and that drew suspicion, but that would take a while because he was moving, he was changing his names, everything's in paper. They would have to like intentionally go and do an investigation to figure that out at that point. I just, things were different back then. Yeah. And he knew this and he worked it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, he's, he's pretty fucking mani- smart but maniacal. Holmes also had a scheme where he would take the cadaver of victims and sell just the skeletons. Like, he would put them in a vat of acid or whatever, dissolve all the flesh off of it, and then sell the skeletons to local labs and schools. He had connections to make these sales from his time in medical school. Um, another fun fact. Police found gas chambers in the castle. So some of the rooms were outfitted with, like, gas pipes that could be turned on and off. Um, They found fake walls. They found secret passageways during their investigation. And eventually the hotel was gutted by a fire set by an unknown arsonist shortly after Holmes was arrested. Someone did rebuild the building, and it actually operated as a post office until 1938, which I thought was pretty cool. I think it's been demolished by now. Mm Mm-hmm. Holmes was executed on May 7th, 1896 at the age of 34, just before his 35th birthday. He had one odd post-mortem request. To have his body buried in concrete so no one could dissect or desecrate his body like he had done to so many others. And the request was granted. And that's H.H. Holmes, the short version. The short version. (laughs) So, my story is about Robert Allen Durst. Allen. Yes. And I have a shit ton of notes, so I'm just going to skim through them and give you guys all the juicy details because it's a shit ton of stuff. And if you want to learn more about this guy, he has a documentary on like Netflix and Hulu and stuff like that. And then there's a shit ton of information online about him because all of his cases have been documented. And as well as like, I think there's another. I don't know, it's like a blog or something like that that people actually go on to and they've done like research and they kind of compile everything together. Yeah, exactly. And this guy is a fucking creep. So totally go on our Facebook and look at a picture of him that we're going to post because he just makes my skin crawl. That is all. Yeah. So Robert Durst is actually the son of a New York City uh, like mogul. He was a real estate mogul. And his dad's name was, uh... Feed me, Seymour! (laughs) Yeah, Seymour Durst. (laughs) And, uh, Robert was actually the elder brother of, uh, Douglas Durst. And he, Robert was actually the head of the Durst organization. Robert was. Robert was, yes. So, Robert was born 
April 12th, 1943 in New York City. Oh, he's an old fuck. Yes, he really is. So, uh, he was actually the suspect, like, in the murder of three individuals in different states. So, the first one was Kathleen McCormick Durst, which was uh, Robert's first wife, who disappeared in New York in 1982. And then Susan uh, Berman... Uh, his longtime friend was killed in California in 2000, and his neighbor, Morris Black, who was killed in Texas in 2001. So Durst was actually the suspect in all these cases. Uh, he was the subject of a, like a multi-state manhunt after Black's body parts were found floating uh, in the Galveston Bay. Oh, fuck. I didn't but, know that part. Although he admitted to the dismembering of Black, uh, he was not charged with it. He was ultimately acquitted of his murders on the grounds of self-defense. So basically, he, wh how they pled to the court was like, she attacked me, I defended myself, and then I just freaked out. I was mm -hmm. so scared I was going to get caught, so that's why I cut her body up into a million pieces and threw it in the bay. Yeah, and it was kind of sad because when they found the bags, they, they were literally like, they washed up. They were up on like a boat launch, oh. like a concrete boat launch. And the detectives were walking up, and they immediately like they they immediately knew exactly what it was. Like yeah. they could see, just because the bags were wet, a toe. It, well, no, that, but they could see the like the bag had pressed down against like the leg, so they could see the whole thigh, the calf, the foot. And then when they got up to the bag, it was either from the bags like washing up onto the concrete boat ramp, or a small rodent was trying to get into the bags. But there's little tiny holes. In the bag, and when they looked into one of the holes, they saw a toe, mm. and they immediately knew that it was body. Mm. Yeah, you gotta weight that shit down, Robert. Yeah, exactly. So um, this is going on to Robert's uh, arrest. So March fourteenth, two thousand fifteen, he was arrested in New Orleans on first degree murder, uh, on a first degree mur murder warrant yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in relation uh, to Berman's killing. On November 4th, 2016, he was actually transferred to California and soon after was arraigned in Los Angeles for first-degree murder charges. So now October 2018, Los Angeles County Superior Judge ruled there was sufficient evidence for Durst to be tried for the death of Berman and his trial was to begin on March 2nd, 2002, but it got postponed because of all this fucking COVID shit. 2020, not... I mean, sorry, yeah, 2020. <laughs> but it got postponed. Um, it was more or less due to all the COVID breakout and, like, the courts closing and stuff like that. So, anyways, that's what's happening currently. So, he hasn't actually been like convicted like the actual or he hasn't been sentenced he hasn't been sentenced okay yet. so he's been convicted. no the the trial hasn't even began his trial begins was supposed to begin march 2nd but it was postponed so he's being held though is my question yes he's not yeah. out on bail no okay uh so 
this is going to... I'm just going to get into the case and everything that happened on the, you know, Berman, his missing wife, the other two cases. I'm just going to kind of... And how, yeah, how everything's kind of connected and what's going on here. So, uh, days after Berman's uh, murder, police were reportedly, like, reported that they were examining, like, connections between Durst and the dis- disappearance of an 18-year-old uh, Lynn, I cannot say this last, uh, Scholes? Scholes, yeah. From uh, Middlebury, uh, Vermont, and a 16-year-old Karen Mitchell from Eureka, California. And was Berman the first one that was murdered or the Berman last Berman was the longtime family friend. So she was the last person that was murdered. She was, no, she wasn't. Oh. She was the, well, technically, yeah, actually. Out of the three, I mean. Out of the three, yeah. So it would have gone Vermont, California. So it would have gone uh, the 18-year-old Lynn Schultz, and then it would have gone Karen. Then it would have gone Berman. Then he was home. Or, you know, came back home. Because yeah. it's Vermont. He's New York. So he went from New York to Vermont. Yeah. Then Vermont to Eureka. And then from Eureka to Berman's house in California. I didn't realize there were two other victims. Okay. Yeah. So this was, like, Berman was murdered. And then days after Berman was murdered, the police started investigating the connection between Durst and the disappearance of these two girls. Okay. So they didn't know about Berman yet. They're just stating, like, when oh. they knew about Berman, two days later, they made these two connections here. Oh. So, uh, the 18-year-old Scholes, the one from Middlebury, uh, she was a college freshman. And she uh, actually visited Durst's, like, health food store on December 10th, 1971, the day she disappeared. And was last seen that afternoon near bus stop across from the store. So, there was, a, there was a few things that characterized this, or not necessarily characterized, but there was a few things in this investigation that kind of spoke what? Sorry, I have a question. What? So, I was under the impression that the friend was killed in the early 2000s. She was killed back in the 70s at the no, same time. No, this, this is the 18-year-old from Vermont. Right. So the 18-year-old from Vermont visited Durst Health Store December 10th, 1971. And that's the day she disappeared. That's the day that she disappeared, yes. I'm not talking about Berman right now. I'm going from the first murder to the second murder to the third murder. Okay. So I'm talking about the first murder, which is the Middlebury girl. Okay, gotcha. Sorry, there's just a lot of murders. I want to understand. Yeah, so... God damn it, now I don't even know where I'm at. Sorry, you were talking about... Going to the health food store in 1971. Wow. Uh, and she was so last lost. seen at a bus stop across from the store that you okay. found. Okay. And then uh, this, so from all that being said, this kind of permit or permitted like Vermont police to start investigating and they actually got a hold of a journalist, Matt Brickbeck, and he reported back in 2003 that, you know, their, the, the investigation started because they noticed the health food store, and that was like the last place that they seen her. So that's that. That was the only reason why they kind of made those connections there, if that makes sense. Yeah. So uh, 
It was... <laughs> it was... I yeah. have no idea what it was. No, it was... The, the only reason what got brought... Like, brought them to Durst a health food store was a credit card transaction placed, like, Durst in Eureka in that time frame. Okay. So that's the only, like, kind of reason why they linked the missing girl to Durst, to the drugstore, et cetera, et cetera. Because it wasn't just one thing that, like, if it was just the drugstore and her going to the bus stop, I don't think they would have taken it any further. But now they got the drugstore, the bus stop, and him having a credit card transaction in that same general area yeah. at that time. Yeah. And so it kind of makes sense. And it was the same day that she vanished. So everything, you know, there's no kind of coincidences like that. Sometimes there is, but not in this case, I don't think. That's true. So they're also they also stated that uh, Michelle could have volunteered at a homeless shelter that Durst like frequently went to when he dressed in women's clothing. Ooh. Uh, they also said that they could have visited the Eureka shoe store, which was owned by Michelle's aunt. And Michelle was last seen walking to work from her aunt's store and possibly speaking to somebody in a stopped car. A witness sketched Michelle's like appear like you know appearance and it kind of or pres sorry Presumably. yes and a witness sketched Michelle's abductor that resembled Durst. There we go. Yeah. So although the FBI ultimately could not connect Durst to the uh like the Long Island serial murders which would be the two girls and a couple other things which were victims being disposed in similar manners like of the black bags and stuff like that. So they couldn't definitively They couldn't yeah, they couldn't definitively say that that was him. Okay. But that was another part of the He was being looked at. Exactly. Yeah. So the bureau created an inf like informal task force in 2012 to work with investigative like investigative agencies in jurisdictions where Durst was known to have lived in past decades, Sorry. including Vermont, New York, California, and uh, in the wake of like his recent arrest, the FBI encouraged like local enforcement to re-examine cold cases so texas private investigator actually uh traced durst like operating under a stolen identity in texas florida massachusetts new jersey south carolina mississippi and virginia so this guy was on top of his shit this private investigator because he found a lot more shit that could have been connected to Durst. That would never have been found if FBI encouraged these local agencies to do this. This Durst guy is... He's intelligent, He's though. smart, but also he comes from a real estate mogul, so he kind of knows the real estate like yeah. world and how to... He's untouchable, though, and I think that's what got yeah. him in the end. Uh-huh. So... After, like, a few days of that first-degree murder warrant, like, was signed by Los Angeles, like, the judge of Los Angeles, in relation to the Berman killing, 
Durst actually got arrested by FBI agents, not like local enforcement or anything, on the March 14th at Canal Street in New Orleans. That's where he had been registered under a false name, Everett Ward. Durst, who had been uh, tracked to like hotel after making phone calls to check his voicemail, was observed wandering aimlessly in the lobby and mumbling to himself, having like driven from New Orleans or from Houston to New Orleans four days before. They were thinking that he was just fucking out of his mind. Do we think that he has substance abuse issues or mental health issues? I think or he's both? just old, both. It's like 70. He's 80. He was born in 1942. Yeah. He's, well, when he got arrested, he was 77. Okay. Uh, in addition to that, he actually had a 38 revolver loaded with four live rounds and one spent shell casing. Oh. Police recovered four ounces of marijuana. Yes. There's a birth certificate and passport maps of Louisiana, Florida, Cuba, and a um, flesh-torn latex mask. Flesh-toned. Hold oh, on. sorry. Let's talk about this for a second. Well, this is when I'm he not was... Even done with everything okay, okay cuz he also got caught with a fake Texas ID which he used to check into the hotel a new cell phone a ca- and like cash totaling $42,000 uh he also discovered a UPS tracking number which led to an additional $117,000 in cash and a pair of shoes and a package <laughs> sent to Durst by a friend from New York <laughs> which was seized after his arrest. Bake statements found in one of Durst's Houston condominiums revealed cash withdrawals of $315,000 in little more than a month. So he was going to flee. He was running. But one spent shell casing, weird, flesh-toned mask, terrifying, five ounces of marijuana, cool. I guess. Sure. That's just quite a plethora of things. And he doesn't seem like the kind of dude that's going to be smoking five ounces of pot. Um, no, I don't think so. He Seven? might have been, or maybe it was from that one spent shell casing that he had, and he killed the guy that had the five ounces of pot. And he took the pot because he was going to sell it because he needed more money. Okay, fair enough. I don't know. Five ounces isn't going to get you crazy. But money. he's not going to... I mean, it doesn't really seem that he needs fucking any no. goddamn money. So he was smoking. He got caught with 42000 almost $43,000 on him. Jeez. He had an additional $117,000 in cash that was sent to him in a package. And then they found $315,000 withdrawn in little than a month. So like three weeks he pulled out. That's like $500,000 in total. Yeah, and this one right here, he pulled out $100,000 a week. If they said it a li- in a little yeah. more than a month. So that's $100,000 a, a week. That but he obviously, if things weren't going off, that wasn't super out of character for him. No, yeah. He was a trust, trust fund baby. Yep. He was taken care of. Yep. So, uh, New York State Police Investigator, uh, was he was long involved with this case. And uh, he said... Like, he had been working closely with the FBI and Los Angeles detectives, 
and they removed some like 60 file boxes from Durst's personal uh like with per personal papers and effects and like all that shit from uh Durst's friend Susan T Gordano Jesus baby uh, how do you say the last name Giordano Giordano I'm sorry <sighs> And Campbell Hall, New York. All these items actually had been like sent to her for safekeeping three years prior to uh, like Durst's wife's disappearance. Okay. And uh, there's also like videotapes and stuff of Durst's brother and a couple other people that kind of show that they might have known of Durst's wife's disappearance, first wife's disappearance and stuff like, like that. Like what happened? Yeah, like they're trying to cover it up and help him, you know. Why? He's a dickhead. Hush it. I don't know. He has a lot of money, that's why. Yeah. And, well, that, and he was also the head of the Durst organization, the family organization. So yeah. the brother probably was trying to do everything he could to keep the money. So far. Yeah, exactly. Um, so... <laughs> This is kind of where it gets weird. So, the police and FBI actually found out about all this, like, I mean, all the paperwork and, like, files and all this shit because Robert actually uh, decided he wanted to become a filmmaker and have an HBO documentary series about him. And that is where they heard robert talking and i'm not gonna really discuss what a fucking idiot yeah. though he's the so, one that brought the documentary upon himself so los angeles county <sighs> uh district attorney claimed to have found information uncovered by the filmmakers in the hbo <laughs> documentary series the jinx to be compo uh, compelling and reportedly like Repeated. repeatedly flew to new york to interview witnesses, including friends of Durst and Berman. So from the things that Durst was saying and from what the things that Durst's friends of him and Berman were saying compelled the district attorney to be like, oh, this is good information. Let's go get this motherfucker. Yeah, this guy's such a fucking idiot. Yes. He, he would have been fine if he wouldn't have... Okay. Exactly. So, uh, this go, this, I'm going to talk about, like, the fire charge. Fire that, charge. The firearm charge that he got, because when he got arrested, he 30. had the 38 on him and stuff like that. Okay. So, uh, it, the defense attorney advised the court authorities that New Orleans and his client like, they waived extradition, and they would voluntarily return to California, and that they would do that that same day. So, Louisiana State Police filed charges against Durst for being a felon in possession of a firearm and for possession of a firearm with a controlled substance. He was a felon? Yes. Well, they charged him as a felony because he had a, a firearm. Or no, yeah. They said Durst for being a felon in possession yeah, of a firearm. So yeah, he must have a felony already. Okay. So, with all that being said, he had 
light priors, but now this just enforces that Louisiana can put Durst in prison for life. Just for that. Just for that gun charge. And him being a felony with the gun charge, plus the guns with drugs and stuff like that. Fucking do it. I know they didn't, but... (laughs) (laughs) So, this all is on March 16th. Now, March 23rd, 2015, Durst was denied bail by Louisiana judge after prosecutors argued he was a flight risk. Yes. So, uh, in an effort to, like, get him extradition, like, extradited to California and avoid, like, Louisiana court battles and all that shit, questions were raised on, like, is the New Orleans arrest valid? Like, the hotel room search, pointing out, like, all all that stuff. Like, it's everything in place. Like, are we going to get this guy? They issued the warrant after he was detained? Yeah. What? You're, you're shooting yourself in the foot. Exactly. So, and that was at the point where his defense pointed out to the local judge that, it, the warrant was not issued until hours after the client was detained. So while communicating, like the new, uh, Louisiana judge communicating with uh, Los Angeles PD and Los Angeles district attorneys and stuff like that, they came up with the great idea of conducting an inventory of Durst's hotel room-like possessions. And that actually led FBI into, like, Coming up with the next plan, if this makes sense, if that makes sense. Okay. Figuring out what the fuck to do. Exactly, because they knew for a fact that if they took this Louisiana thing to court, it was gonna fall gonna apart fail. because Durst is fucking rich and the warrant yep. wasn't issued. Like, and what's sad no if it was some young teenage kid, African American kid, whatever, they would throw that kid in jail for life because he'd have a public defender. So it's all about fucking money. Mm-hmm. Very unfortunate. So. With this being said, eh, the Louisiana court or case fell apart. The arresting officer was subpoenaed and uh, never actually came to court. What? So he, Durst, he got bribed. Durst's attorneys charged Louisiana prosecutors with encouraging and misguiding or misguided attempt to conceal the facts from the court. What? And, uh, yeah, the assistant U.S. attorney said that his office instructed the two FBI agents and arrested officer, arresting officer, uh, and arrested officer not to appear. What? What? So the U.S. attorney instructed them to do that. Why? He was saying that. They, they were arguing that the defense's subpoenas were issued in an attempt to conduct actions against them in the official capacity for the purpose of obtaining testimony, information, and material maintained to undercolor the, like, their official duties. So basically they fucked up and the government was like no don't go testify cuz you're going to make yourself look worse. Well yeah, we're just going to make it look worse so don't go at all. Okay. Yeah. I think they were afraid of his lawyers too. Yeah. So the next month in April, 
a day after the U.S. attorney uh, filed an independent, like, independent federal weapons charge against Durst. Durst was formally indict, uh, indicted. <laughs> indicted. 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 He got the dick right up his ass as yep, soon as he got in prison. By the Louisiana grand jury, he got dicked up by the ass by then. That's a lot Anyways, of dicks. Sorry. Uh, grand jury for carrying a weapon with a controlled substance and for the illegal possession of the firearm, you know, being a felon. Durst's lawyer request, uh, requested that more than 161000 seized by authorities during the searches be returned, oh. saying this cash is needed for... Uh, is not needed as evidence, it is not contraband, and it is not subject to, uh... Forfeiture. Thank you. Giving it up. Exactly. And to, going like, I else. hate this guy. I yeah. hate this guy. But to be fair, if legally this is his money from his parents' fucking trust fund or whatever, yeah. they can't really... It's not like it's drug money. Yeah. You know, they can't keep it. Yeah. So after uh, negotiations between Durst defense team and Louisiana authorities, Louisiana ultimately dropped weapons charges <laughs> against Durst on April 23rd. So Durst trial though for the federal weapon rep, wow, weapons charge was scheduled for September 21st. Okay. His... Defense team confirmed rumors that Durst was in poor health, stated that he has suffered from a bunch of different shit, and he had, like, stints put in. He's a million years old. His fucking skull two years ago, and he had, like, spinal surgery and cancerous mass removed and fucking fucking all this shit. I hope you die of cancer. So Durst's attorneys requested a later date for the federal weapons charge trial, saying they, like... They need more time to prepare after ruling on pending motions. So, U.S. District Judge later rescheduled the trial for January 11th, 2016. Okay. And then on November 16, 2015, a New Orleans uh, federal judge ordered Durst to be rearranged on the weapons charge and scheduled a hearing for December 7th. When at seventeenth, when asked, Durst attorney said only that Durst did not kill Berman and that he wants to resolve the other charges to uh, pretty much expedite like Durst extract or extradition back to Los Angeles to face the charges. So like, he didn't so kill anybody. Mother- we don't need to look at that. Let's yeah, just focus this on motherfucker was literally like... Sidestepping. It, sidestepping, but he was getting passed back and forth between California and Louisiana fucking like a ping pong ball. Well, he they was playing it, though. They were yeah, it. Yeah, they were. So now it's December 6th. 16th. God damn it. 2015. <laughs> Prosecutors and defense attorneys told the, uh, told the joint motion that like the conflicts ruled out all dates before January 11th trial date. So ultimately like the rescheduling of the trial for February 3rd, 2016 and Durst like changing his plea to guilty for the federal gun charge and receiving an 85 months prison sentence and all that. That was final. That, that was what what was happening. That for sure. 100%. So now they're just focused on the murder charges. Yeah, and now we are getting into the early 2015s when the six-part HBO documentary series came out, The Jinx, The Life, 
and Death of Robert Durst. This is my favorite part. So that's when all that evidence and circumstantial like shit linking Durst to the murder of Birmingham or Berman was it came you know it this, came to a head. Yeah, exactly. This documentary detailed the disappearance of McCormick and Berman's uh, death. Which this guy was all for, remember? As he well wanted as to be a the killing of Black. Yeah. So, against the advice of his attorney <laughs> and his wife, Durst gave multiple interviews, multiple interviews, <laughs> and unrestricted access to his personal records oh, to man. the filmmaker. Oh, man. FBI arrested this dipshit. In New Orleans, on the same day as the final episode was broadcasted, the documentary ended with him moving in to a bathroom where his microphone recorded him saying to himself, there it is, you're caught, you're right, of course, but you can't imagine, arrest him, I don't know what's in the house, oh, what, this what a disaster he was right i was wrong and the burping i have i'm having difficulty with the question what the hell did you do killed them all of course and he's just mumbling this to himself he's, he's just talking pee. to yeah he's just going pee he's just talking Talk to himself. himself he's fucking nuts he's crazy he's fucking old yeah, so the press reported uh, that March 1999, a letter from Durst to Berman was discovered by uh, her stepson and turned over to the filmmaker during their research. Oh. This was the key evidence leading to the filing of the murder charges. Okay, so he wrote it to her before he killed her, essentially. Yeah, pretty okay. much. Police uh, have directly questioned Durst and sometimes conducted searches in connections to the disappearance of his first wife. So our dog is freaking out. Yeah. <laughs> Another pause. Sorry, guys. Okay, in the podcast world, there was not really a break just now, but we had 15 minutes of me driving around looking for our dog that broke his chain. He's back. He's on his bed. He came right up to me. He just had an adventure. <laughs> All right, continue with the, with the gnarly shit. All right, so... I had been talking about Durst's first marriage and how his wife went missing. She was a dental hygienist, and after two dates, Durst invited her to share his home in Vermont with him, where he had like opened a health food store, which we talked about earlier, and uh, she moved in, actually, January 1972. So... Durst's father pressured him to move back to New York and, you know, work in the family business. So the couple returned to Manhattan where they got married April 1973. So they've been together for three years now. And it was Durst's 30th birthday when they got married. So shortly after her disappearance, she was actually a student in her fourth and final year at uh, Albert Einstein College of Medicine in the Bronx and was 
only like a few months short of earning her degree. She actually um, had intended to become a pediatrician and was last seen by someone other than Durst the evening of January 31st, 1982. So, uh, she appeared at the dinner party that was thrown by one of her friends in Newton, Connecticut. Uh, they noticed that she was, like, upset and she was wearing red sweatpants. And it was really odd that she was dressed like that because it was a much higher quality of clothing that she should have been dressed in. It's... It was a dinner party. They're she like came an elite, red... fancy, rich people thing. Yeah, exactly. That's it. weird. Yeah. So, after she left, she actually, her friends actually called uh, their husband and, like, talked to them about it. And they thought it was really weird and all that shit. So, the couple, then, like, Durst and uh, Katie, they got into an argument and they fought that evening and... Durst maintained that he put his wife on a train to New York, had some drinks with a neighbor, and then spoke with his wife at their Manhattan apartment. So they went to the dinner party together. By telephone. Though. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, by telephone okay. that evening. Okay. And that's what was told to the police. Durst later told the documentary, I was hoping that would just make everything go away. Okay. Yeah. So after Katie had left her friend's house, she was supposed to meet up at a pub that was called the Lionsgate in Manhattan, and she never showed up. Okay. They, her friends became concerned and reported, reported to the police for you know several days that they haven't seen her and all this stuff. So days later, Durst filed a missing person report mm. as well. After. A doorman at yeah after a doorman at the building said that the couple's apartment or a doorman at the couple's apartment building in Riverside Drive claimed to have seen Katie there on February first, which was one day after she was last seen. Huh. But okay. the doorman also said that he had seen her only for from behind. And from half a block away. Okay. And could it be certain that it was her? Oh, okay. A private investigator hired by Durst's own criminal lawyer later reported that the doorman said he had not seen her arrive at all and may not have been working the night she actually disappeared. Well, there that goes. Yeah. So, Katie had been uh, treated at the Bronx Hospital for uh, facial bruises three weeks before her disappearance. She told a friend that Durst beat her, but did not press charges over the incident. She also asked Durst for a divorce settlement of $250,000. To be fair to him, that's nothing. Yeah. yeah, so once she requested that of him, Durst canceled all her credit cards, oh. removed her name from the joint account, and refused to pay her medical school tuition at the time she disappeared. Oh. So Durst had been uh, dating this other lady for three years and was actually living in a separate apartment with her. Durst offered 100000 for his wife's return as like a reward what and then reduced. 
reduced that reward to $15,000 only three weeks after Durst reported her missing. What? And you knew that nobody was going to report anything because you did it. So why did you even reduce the... This guy's yeah. a trip. Yeah. So when one of Katie's friends and her sister found out that she had been reported missing, they broke into her cottage hoping to find her. Instead, they found the cottage ransacked. Katie's mail left unopened and her belongings in the trash. Hmm. Yeah, they became afraid and left. Yeah. So after all that and after Katie went missing, police said that Durst had claimed to have la uh, last spoken to her when she uh, called him from the Manhattan apartment. He claimed that the last time he had seen her was at the train station when he dropped her off to put her on the train to go back to New York from her friend's house at the dinner party. Okay. So that's where she was planning on boarding a 9.15 p.m. train to Manhattan. He also claimed that on February 4th, the supervisor at her medical school called him and said that she had called in sick on February 1st and was absent from class that entire week. I'm it surprised was, that they called him. Yeah, it was uncertain if it was indeed Katie who made the call. The day after Durst mm. received the call from Kate, uh, Katie's school, he reported her missing. Okay. The police found his story to be full of uh, contradictions. Yeah. So, eight years after Katie's disappearance, Durst divorced her. Claiming a spousal, spousal abandonment. Okay. The, the Katie's family asked to have her, the, to have her declared dead. Yeah. And requested that she was granted the following year, or the request was granted the following year. Okay. So her mother uh, attempted to sue Durst for a hundred milli, a uh, hundred mil, hundred milli, hundred milli, <laughs> saying that he actually killed her. And, you know, that they, it was the right for them being deprived to bear, you know, the right to bury the body. So it was for, what's that, uh, for emotional yeah. whatever, yeah. Well, it just allegedly that he killed her and deprived them the right to bury her body. Yeah. So her parents are now deceased. Her younger sister believes that Durst murdered her. The New York State Police quickly and quietly reopened the criminal investigation into the disappearance in 1999, searching Durst's, like, former uh, South Salem residence for the first time. Investigation became public in November 2000. So that's when everything blew up and the jinx fucking... No, that wasn't 2000. That was 2000. Well, that's when, like, the filmmaker was, you know, got wind of all this Durst shit and he was starting to do it. Cause in the, 2000? Yeah, because Netflix wasn't a thing in 2000. The fuck that's it a, wasn't. That's a Netflix documentary. What? It's that old? I thought that just came out in like 2016. No, no, no. Netflix is old. Uh, I know Netflix is old, but the documentary. Oh, no, the documentary is... I mean, it still takes you years of research, babe. It takes you 16 years to make a documentary? I don't know about 16 years. Because I thought it came out in 2016. Am I wrong? The Jinx? That was a new documentary. Well, it was like 16 or 17. I think it was actually earlier. I think it was 18. But it started in 2000. No, I'm just saying that's when they 
the police officers were able to go and investigate the Salem house, and that's when the thing became public. So that's what I was saying was probably when the filmmaker got wind of all this and decided he was going to do a documentary on it. Gotcha. If he could. Okay. Because before that, none of this stuff was public. Yeah, okay. Damn you. I'm sorry. So you were basically just saying that's when he started getting, like, gaining interest from different people and people started really looking into him and yeah. all that. Okay. Yeah. So now on to Susan, who was the longtime friend of Durst and all that. So, uh... <laughs> <laughs> It was, it's really, it, this one is really weird because everybody thinks Durst killed her because she knew that he killed his wife. His wife. Yeah. That's, ex that's, that's it. Yeah. But the whole thing behind Susan is really weird because, like, I don't know, it was... You think there's another reason? I do, but at the same time, I, I'm not 100% sure. What would be the other reason? Anyways, uh, Susan lived in uh, Nevada, I believe it was, for a while, because they... they uh, David... Well, oh, I'm trying to just cut this down. So, Dave was Susan's father and dave was like a big time gangster in the late 40s he operated the flamingo hotel and casino oh. in las vegas all that shit so i kind of think that there was something more to it because i mean i see durst and susan being close but i see durst using susan to be close to her dad type deal because okay. he was a gangster and yeah. durst is all into this fucking stupid shit yeah anyways on uh, december uh 24th, 2000, uh, Susan was found murdered execution style in her home in uh, Benedict Canyon, California, after her neighbors called the police to report that her back door was open for like, or, and their, and her three fox terriers were loose. Okay. I guess they were doing like a well fair check. I thought check. that was weird. Yeah. Good, good on them. Yeah. A few days later, the Beverly Hill Police Department received a handwritten note postmarked December 23rd, which contained Susan's address and the words cadaver. Durst is known to have been in Northern California days before Susan was killed and to have flown from San Francisco to New York the night before her body was discovered. Also, Susan had recently received $50,000 from Durst and two payments. Ah. Although Durst confirmed to LAPD that he had sent her $25,000 and, and faxed investigators a copy of her 1982 uh, like deposition regarding his missing wife, he declared to be like further questioned about Berman's murder. Or he declined to be questioned about her murder further. Could, yeah, I guess you can decline. Okay. Because he was stating that, you know, she, you know, this is hit her deposition from my testimony, so there's no way you can link me to this. Anyways, Durst said in 2005, uh, 
that Susan called him shortly before her death to say that LAPD wanted to talk to her about uh, the disappearance of Katie. It doesn't make you look suspicious. Yeah, a, a study of like case notes, or like by the LAPD had made such calls and like were working to schedule interviews with Susan. Okay. And Durst, this was like at the time, like Durst, I guess, moved to Galveston, Texas in 2000. And he lived in a like boarding house and had uh, gone into hiding and began like posing as like a woman to avoid police. Okay, I love that. So this this (laughs) all kind of like goes hand in hand in a way. That's why I was thinking like these two knew something. And then I think Susan just kind of got was just over it. Well, she was just over it. And then Durst is like, no, you're fucking taking this to the grave. Uh, Literally. Yeah. So uh, Durst actually got tipped off that that investigators were reopening the case against his, or about his uh, wife's disappearance. Okay. And uh, that's immediately when he began planning to, like, like, flee. For life, pretty much. <coughs> Live his wife as a woman. Yes. So, this is still when he is in Texas. And it is October 9th, 2000. He was arrested in Galveston. 2001. 2001. He was arrested in Texas shortly after body parts belonging to his elderly neighbor, Morris Black, were found floating in the bay. Full circle. Yes. He was released on $300,000 bail the next day. Durst missed a court hearing, and a warrant was issued for his arrest, and, uh, like, the charge of jumping bail and shit like that. Okay. So, November 30th, he was caught inside a uh, Wigman's supermarket, and this is in Pennsylvania, after trying to shoplift Band-Aids and a newspaper, a chicken salad sandwich, and uh, roasted red peppers on pumpernickel bread. Pumpernickel? Pumpernickel, thank And you. by the way, he wasn't trying to steal a box of Band-Aids. He was trying to steal a Band-Aid. A Band-Aid. Yeah. He took a Band-Aid yeah. out of the box. And this is even though he had $500 in cash in his pocket. Like, why? Yeah. So police uh, actually searched his rental car, and that yielded another 37000 in cash, oh two God. guns, oh marijuana, God. and Black's driver's license. So he totally got high. Yes. Okay. And also, you remember the friend, from, uh, Katie's friend from Connecticut that they went to the dinner party to? Yeah. There was actually directions to her house in <gasps> Connecticut in the rental car as well. Can you imagine being her and finding that out? Oh, yeah. I didn't know that so either. So he also used this time on the run to stalk his brother, visiting the driveway of his home in New York while armed. There's a, like employed defense attorney to pretty much like hold the that pretty much like while the charges were being held on him in Pennsylvania, so he could like eventually just be extradited to Texas for trial for everything. Okay. And then we're into the trial. Okay. So this is when 
in 2003, Durst was tried for murder of Black. Which was the woman who ended up in the bay. Yep. And he employed the defense attorney that claimed self-defense. They conducted two mock trials in preparation of the case. Okay. The defense team had difficulty communicating with him, so they hired a, a, a shrink to find out why, you know, it took so, like, spent over 70 hours examining Durst and, like, diagnosing him with... Diagnosing him? Uh, diagnosing him with... Uh, Asperger's syndrome. And saying his whole life's history is uh, compatible with Asperger's disorder. And Durst's defense team argued at trial that the diagnosis explains his, like, behavior. Two things. Diagnosis, not diagnosis. Oh, sorry. Second thing. I understand what they are trying to say, but I personally have a family member who has Asperger's. Socially, they can be a little bit different in situations, but that is absolutely not an excuse for anything else. Like, yeah, maybe having a hard time communicating with him, but that shouldn't be a pity story to why he fucking murdered a bunch of people. That is all. Yeah. So they claim self-defense because Durst claimed he and Black, a cranky and confront, like confrontational loner, struggled for control over Durst's twenty-two pistol. And that Black grabbed it from his uh, hiding place and threatened him with it. Okay. During the struggle, the pistol discharged, shooting Black in the face. Uh. During the cross-examination, Durst admitted to using a pair of knives, two saws, and an axe to dismember Black's body before bagging and dumping her remains in the bay. Black's head was never recovered. So prosecutors were unable to present sufficient sufficient forensic evidence. Like, was she shot in the head? To dispute Durst's account of the struggle. As a result of a lack of evidence, the jury acquitted Durst in 2003. Wow. So now it's December 2004. Durst pled guilty to two counts of bell jumping and one count of evidence tampering. That's due to the fact of the dismembered Black's body and the missing head. Mm-hmm. As part of a plea bargain, he received a sentence of five years and was given credit for time served, oh my requiring God. him to serve three years in prison. Wow. Durst was paroled on July fifteenth, two 2005. The rules of his release required him to stay, uh, like stay near his home. And, like, permission was required to travel. Like an ankle monitor type situation? Yeah, yeah. And then, uh, so that December, Durst made an unauthorized trip to the boarding house where Black had been killed and the nearby shopping mall. And uh, while at the mall, he ran into a former uh, Galveston trial judge who had pretty much like overseeing his trial and due to this incident the texas board of pardons and parolee department was told that durst had violated the terms of his parole and returned back to jail he was released again from custody march 1st 2006 now we're back to recent and 
it's pretty much you know, I've already talked about all of that. Right, the docu series and all that. Yeah, docu series, all that, as well as why his trial was postponed recently in twenty twenty. Rona. Yeah. So all that is pretty scary. And uh, asked in March of two thousand fifteen whether she believed Durst like murdered Morris. The judge actually, the judge that actually called the parole board and said that, you know, this motherfucker is, you know, he, he's failing to oblige by the rules and okay. stuff like that. She said, you could see that this person knew what they were doing and that it was not his first time. The body was cut perfectly like a surgeon who knew how to use this tool on the bone and certain kind of tool on that muscle. It looked like it was done by an experienced person. It was not a first time job. And that was pretty scary and that's what made her like like she they the report said that like she saw him and within five minutes she was on the phone with the department and like calling them and shit like that. Yeah. So that's Robert Durst. We'll keep you updated about the trial, see what happens, but He's going to prison for sure. I mean, he got away with murdering Black. I don't see him getting away with anything else. He better fucking not. And that was well. And he's on trial for the murder of Berman too. Yeah. So I think that one. Yeah, I think that one's gonna get him. Very nicely done, babe. Good job. Such a good case. So scary and crazy, but such a good case. We already told you about the social media stuff and the Gmail. Hope you guys are staying safe out there and staying sane. We love you. Uh, talk to us. We're super fucking bored. I'm in my house all day. And. That's Later. It. Bye.